The galaxy is a big place. It includes over a million known habitable planets with developed ecological systems. Each is unique and populated by countless creatures of all shapes and sizes. Never feed us after midnight. This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show. My name is Nathan Stone and I will be your host today. On this episode, we will be talking about the many and varied fantastical creatures of Warhammer 40k. We are going to do something a little bit different in that we will be staying in Rogue Trader for the whole episode. We're going to look at those strange alien creatures that populated the earliest era of Warhammer 40k. And let me tell you, there are some interesting creatures from that early era. We're going to be talking about squirrels, clams, amble, and all sorts of other strange and wonderful creatures. Before we dive into that, I have some hobby and some news to share with you today. In hobby news, I did some. Hooray for me! And before I tell you about what I did, because I did something a little... I tried out something new, and it ties into an episode that I did recently, the last 40k episode that we did on this show. I need to give you a little bit of context about me as a person. And the best way I can do this is by telling you why I don't drink coffee. And bear with me here, because it will all be relevant. Now, I am not a coffee drinker. I have never drank a cup of coffee in my entire life. And there is a specific reason for this. And it's not that I don't like the taste of coffee. A lot of people don't like the taste of coffee. I, however, really like it. And the reason I know that I like it is because I have had many coffee-flavored things, coffee-adjacent things, and I love all of them. I am a huge fan of any kind of chocolate that is flavored with coffee. 100%. It's all good. But I avoid drinking it. Very specifically. Because... I've learned enough about myself as a person to know that I have an incredibly addictive personality, and I'm a very impulsive person. These two things mean that were I to start drinking coffee, within a couple of months, I would only be drinking the coffee that has to pass through the digestive system of a small jungle cat. I would be that much of a snob, and I would be that much down the rabbit hole. And the reason I bring this up is that if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you may realize that I do tend to cycle through projects pretty quickly. Do I tend to finish them? Oh, heavens no, I do not. But I love starting something new, something fresh, and I do actually like having older projects to come back to whenever the mood strikes me. And as far as addictions go, I have been addicted to Warhammer and Warhammer 40,000 since I was a child, and there seems to be no sign of that abating anytime soon, considering how much of my brain space and my time is taken up by this hobby in one form or another. With all that said, I have a new project that I have started, and I'm hoping that this one is one that I can do a good chunk on before I feel the need to hop over to a new project because something else shiny has caught my eye. Or, as has been my problem since starting this podcast, I will do an episode on a certain army or a certain unit, and then it fills up my head for the next week, and all I can think about is how I would build 
and paint and play this army. It happened after the Kislev episode, where I was sourcing historical miniatures and seeing what the old Ice Queen Catherine models were going for on eBay. And then after this last Tomb Kings episode, I was thinking to myself, boy, it would be pretty cool to pick up Kalita and maybe do a little thing with that. My point is that my brain, my brain is a junkie. And are you laughing at me? And my wife is laughing at me now. <laughs> and so we come to the last 40k episode that I did, which was on the Gene Stealer cults. And I think that that might have been the best solo episode that I have done of this podcast, or perhaps maybe the one that I just had the most fun with. And I couldn't get it out of my head, this really neat idea of an incredibly motley assortment of units, gene stealers, imperial guard, beastmen, demons. And I thought to myself, well, why fight this? Most of what I play in 40k nowadays is second edition. And Although it doesn't work quite as well in 2nd edition as it does in Rogue Trader, you can make a very convincing Chaos Gene Stealer cult, as the Gene Stealer cult list in the Tyranid book can ally with Chaos units. So you can do some fun stuff back and forth that way. And to that end, I painted up my very first brood brother. He is the classic Cadian Metal 2nd edition Imperial Guardsman. I have a bunch of these guys lying around. They're my favorite of the early guard range. I think they've got a really good Starship Troopers vibe to them, and I always really like them. So I think what I'm going to do is put some of them together, put some Beastmen together, and some Gene Stealers, source out, or maybe trade for a Patriarch and maybe a Magus. Then I'll have the makings of my own weird little army. I think it's really what I want out of 40k. I've been really struggling to figure out what I want to do with 40k, what, how I want to play with 40k. I'm just so done with Space Marines at the moment. And if you're not into Space Marines, you have eliminated most of the factions of 40k right there. This army is going to be very weird, very strange. I'm probably going to do up some Gene Stealer infected orcs as well. And... I may run it in 9th edition if my opponents will let me get away with pretty much everything counting as something else, run it as a Gene Stealer cult army. You can see the pictures of my first Gene Stealer infected chaos worshipping Imperial Guardsman up on the orchard. I posted him up alongside one of my test beastmen. The beastmen are going to be mostly for fantasy, but as I've found playing against Patrick and his chaos stuff in 2nd edition, Beastmen are great in 2nd edition. They are wonderful meat shields. Toughness 4, 2 wounds makes them very hard to chew through, as you just don't always have enough guns in 2nd edition to chew through a big unit like that. Either way, it's made me much more excited for Warhammer 40k, even if it's simply a 2nd edition vanity project. Now on to the news. I have a couple of interesting things to share with you guys. Firstly, we are going to have some more videos up on the Wargames Orchard YouTube channel soon. I am working on a short little piece myself, and Scott and I will be proudly presenting our very first streamed game on the 29th, next Monday. 
if you're listening to this episode when it comes out. That very first game will be Warhammer Fantasy. We're going to be trying out our Orchard Edition, which is primarily 6th edition core rules with 8th edition books. It works better than you'd think. If you're interested in joining us for that, just have a little look for the War Games Orchard YouTube channel. We have our very first live episode up on the channel, and it was a lot of fun. We didn't have all of our equipment working as intended for that episode. It's not the prettiest thing in the world, but it's a really fun listen, and I think you guys would enjoy that if you're into Warhammer Fantasy. On our channel, we will also be streaming 40k, both the current edition and, whenever I can, second edition as well, and we'll be doing a little bit of Infinity. Our goal is to get to the point where we can do an episode a week of the live stream, plus whatever other videos we have time to get up, but that may take us a little while. In the meantime, please do check us out if you enjoy the show. Last but not least, it's time for my obligatory Patreon plug. The War Games Orchard Patreon is where you will find the bonus content for this show. We do all sorts of fun stuff on the Patreon. In fact, I just released a bonus episode all about the incredible 4th edition Kislev army list from Citadel Journal. If you like bears, people riding bears, bears fighting on their own, big bears, slightly less big bears, you will like this army list, you will like the breakdown. This was the Kislev army we deserved, but never got as an army book, and only really saw in glimpses when they got their White Dwarf supplement. This list is incredible, it has all sorts of special characters, all sorts of weird and wonderful things. Did you know you could take Baba Yaga as a special character for Kislev, including her chicken-legged hut? Because you can, it has rules, and I go over the entirety of the army list on the Patreon. That bonus episode is available right now. We are also working on our Warhammer Hall of Shame episode for the Patreon, and that will be coming out quite soon as well. To get this wonderful content isn't going to cost you much, our Patreon is non-tiered, which means that for a minimum donation of a single dollar in your currency of choice, you can have access to our Patreon, to that bonus episode every month, and to all of the other bonus content that I get up as frequently as I can. If you enjoy the show, then I can't think of a better use of a dollar or more dollars if you can. We appreciate each and every donation, and a huge shout out to the patrons who have joined us in the last 30 days. We have several new patrons, and it's great to see. Thank you guys all so much for joining us. Now, let's dive in to the depths of Warhammer 40,000. Rogue Trader, the first edition rulebook. And what a thing this is. It is incredible, clocks in over 280 pages, and it feels more like the rulebook for something like Dungeons & Dragons than it does to a modern-day 40k release. Because this was the very first thing ever released, they had to stick just about anything and everything they could think of in here, and it means that it's just bursting with ideas, with crazy rules. It has everything from army lists, 
rules about vehicles, both military and civilian, wondrous creatures that we'll cover today, other armies and hazards. It is just full of stuff. And as we'll see today, there are going to be things that you'll recognize from the modern era that have made their return, and things that we never saw past the entry in this tome. We're going to start things off with the warp creatures. And the reason why is simply, well, they're before the regular creatures in the book, and I really wanted to share these guys because this is before demons. Before the Chaos Gods themselves made their way to Warhammer 40k. So even as we go through these warp creatures, and you'll see a few that have some similarities to demons that would come later on, none of these are demons and none of them will reference any of the Gods of Chaos. It was a very short-lived time in 40k before the oncoming of Chaos. But we have it here, and these creatures are really different, unique, and have sown the seeds for a lot of the things that came after. This is what Rogue Trader has to say about warp creatures. This section is concerned with the many different creatures existing wholly or partially within the medium of warp space, or which have special abilities, powers, or interests derived from there. These creatures may be... These creatures may be of an altogether different order to those of the material universe, or they may be essentially normal creatures with limited warp space access. The number and variety of warp creatures can only be guessed at, and those presented here represent only a, only a useful core of beings for, the, for inclusion in the game. Others may be invented by imaginative, imaginative GMs as desired. Because warp creatures are... Because warp creatures present players with special problems, it is a good idea to occasionally invent new ones or to modify the power of existing types. In this way, players will remain unsure of exactly what they are facing, and that is an important part of the game. Many of the creatures described in the following section prey upon or exploit psychic creatures in some way. In particular, many are described as being able to use unprotected human psychers in certain ways. Unprotected psychers are human psychers whose uncontrolled psychic emanations act like a beacon in warp space. Some human psychers are strong enough to control their powers, and they and those do not and those do not count as unprotected. Such psychers are often recruited into the Imperial services in some form. Only about ten percent of all psychers are this strong. The remainder count as unprotected unless they undergo the soul-binding ritual with the Emperor and become astropaths. As a rule, psychic characters controlled by the players will not be unprotected. We can see the, fir we can see the very beginnings, the inklings of what the warp would become through this little description of warp creatures. A lot of things we'll see today are in their infancy, and this really reads like a role-playing book. There will be many, many references to the GM in our exploration today, and that is a game master, as Rogue Trader was designed to be played with three players, one of them acting as the game master in the same vein as the game master or dungeon master in a role-playing game. Our first beast for today is the Astral Hound. 
and I think you guys will see some interesting parallels between this and the later flesh hounds. Astral hounds resemble large, dark, shadowy dogs. They are carnivorous and extremely predatory, but are not intelligent. Brute instinct allows them to track the psychic aura of their prey through warp space. Although the hounds can track a psychic aura of any creature with psychic abilities, the strongest and most attractive scent is that of the unprotected human psyker. So strong is their compulsion to seek out the source of this aura that the astral hound is the single most dangerous foe of the emergent psyker. They use the psyker's own powers to take form within the material universe. Astral hounds attack with a numbing bite, paralyzing their victim. Once helpless, the unfortunate victims are taken back into warp space, where the hounds feed upon their psychic energy. The poor psyker simply disappears, confounding friends and neighbors. Astral hounds are ferocious combat opponents and capable of making short warp space jumps of several meters, suddenly appearing behind or beside their enemy. The Astral Hound is the proto-Flesh Hound. We see so much of what is the underlying themes of the Flesh Hound, except minus the demonic and cornate aspects of them. It's really very cool. They are no joke in Rogue Traders, sporting Weapon Skill 4, Strength 4, Toughness 4, Initiative 5, and 2 Attacks. A more impressive profile than the Space Marines of the era, which we're going to use as our benchmark for judging some of these beasties. They had a number of interesting special rules, including a warp jump that is not unlike the warp jump that warp spiders make in later editions. They also usually ran in packs of 1 to 6. The next warp creature is the Astral Spectre. The term Spectre covers a variety of entities which have no physical bodies, but which exist primarily within the medium of warp space. So these are our warp ghosts. They are able to impinge upon the material world only through the activities of psychics, following the psychic trail either deliberately or being drawn to it unintentionally. Unprotected human psychers cannot help but attract these creatures, giving rise to poltergeist activity, apparent insanity, etc. Spectres have intelligence, but of an order very different from humans, and in many ways incomprehensible. They have no respect for living creatures, utilizing psychers only to survive. Once divorced from warp space, a specter needs constant supply of psychic energy or else it will be destroyed. The only way a specter can obtain this energy is to occupy the body of an intelligent living creature. Every day that the specter occupies a body, d6 points of the victim's willpower are drained, until the body is completely drained and then useless. Abandoned bodies do not die, but become mindless shells. The body of a Psyker is more useful to the Spectre because Psy points can be drained as well as willpower. The host cannot replenish Psy points lost to the Spectre, and will eventually be drained and abandoned, as with other creatures. The Astral Spectre is an interesting opponent in Rogue Trader because, much like a possessing demon, or ghost, or other spirit, it doesn't have a profile of its own. Instead, it modifies the profile of whatever creature you have decided as the game master is going to be the possessed creature. And the Astral Spectre makes whatever that creature is far more potent. It grants plus two weapon skill, plus two ballistic skill, plus one strength, plus one toughness, plus one wound, plus one initiative, plus one attack, and tens across the board in leadership, intelligence, cool, and willpower. 
I love the idea of the astral specter for things like scenario play. Imagine having a space marine captain who has been possessed by an astral specter. Perhaps he was a repressed psyker. And now one player has to lead an inquisitorial strike force to kill the captain and banish the specter. Of course, the captain's space marines would fight back, seeing this as an unprovoked attack, as their captain has become even more powerful and heroic than ever. I think this thing leads itself to such interesting narratives. One of the great things about this rogue trader book is that most of the units and beasts that it describes have illustrations. The Astral Hound looks like a classic hound dog that is jumping out of a rift in time and space. The specter is very interesting. It shows it in its spectral form, where it's, it's very ghost-like. It has long features, long fingers, sunken features in its head and no mouth. Next up is one that has since been relegated to the distant past of Warhammer 40k, and that is the Enslavers. They play a big part in the fluff of the Necrons, at least the early fluff of the Necrons, and in this early era of Warhammer 40k, they can still be found from time to time active in the galaxy. The origin of these creatures, known to humanity only as enslavers, is a complete mystery. Their ability to transcend normal space enables them to move easily throughout the galaxy and perhaps beyond. They have physical bodies, although unlike any other known life form. Enslavers are basically spheroid, or barrel-shaped, approximately two meters tall, with tough, leathery skin. At the top of their bodies is a single large sensory organ, sometimes called an eye, although its exact function can only be guessed at. Around the top of the creature's body is a cluster of tentacles, typically from 8 to 12, each about one and a half meters long. Often two of these tentacles are longer than the others, and end in suckered pads. These tentacles function as both sensory and manipulative organs. Enslavers have no legs, but move by floating, sometimes assisted by their tentacles for fast or precise movement. They can move quite rapidly by this means, and can change direction and speed in a way comparable to humans and other more orthodox creatures. Enslavers will float at up to three meters above the ground, or floor surface, but cannot fly as such. They can climb using their tentacles, Enslavers can change their color at will, but the normal coloration is leathery brown with paler, sometimes white, tentacles. The eye organ is red, orange, or pinkish. In human terms, it's impossible to say whether enslavers are intelligent. They certainly act in a rational manner and seem able to make reasonable decisions about their actions. However, if they are able to communicate with other races, they make no attempt to do so, and they use no tools or equipment of any kind. Even though they may theoretically be physically capable of using weapons, they never do. Manual work is conducted by their slaves, it being their ability to enslave other creatures that gives them their name. These creatures enslave other races by mental control. Each enslaver can take over and control the minds of up to ten other creatures. Victims retain all of their knowledge, abilities, and physical attributes, but are directed by the will of the enslaver. This mind control ability has a range of up to 50 meters. Enslavers travel through warp space by utilizing the psychic vibrations of other creatures. 
As usual, the strongest and most easily tracked psychic emanations come from unprotected human psychers. As an aside, being an unprotected human psyker is about the worst thing that can happen to you in Rogue Trader. Really, we've already heard this a ton of times, but everything is out to get you if you are a psyker who doesn't have that kind of protection. Enslavers can detect such vibration from tens of light years distance and can home in and exploit unprotected psychers in a particularly gruesome way. Once they have tracked a victim, three enslavers band together to form a mental bond. The victim may be unaware of this at first, but gradual changes are forced upon his body chemistry. He becomes tired and lethargic, and his skin begins to discolor. After a period of 50 to 75 hours, the victim swells as his body tissues disintegrate and reform into the shape of a living, pulsing gate of ruptured flesh. This is the end of the victim to all intents and purposes. He has been transformed into a special form of warp gate, a physical link through warp space between the psyker's world and that of the enslavers. Because the gate has been formed by three specific enslavers, only they may use it, although they are unrestricted and may enter and exit as they wish. That is particularly gruesome. A flesh portal is not the type of phrase that we throw around all that often, and it's nice that we don't, quite frankly. The description goes on to tell us that once these enslavers are on a world, they will create more warp gates to bring in more enslavers until such a time as the world is completely dominated. Enslavers are amongst the most alien of creatures that Games Workshop has ever placed in the Warhammer 40,000 universe, they are completely unlike us in any way, shape, or form. Their stats are quite interesting. They have a movement of 6, weapon skill of 3, ballistic skill 3, strength 5, toughness 5, 3 wounds, initiative 4, and 1 attack. They are 10s across the board in leadership, intelligence, cool, and willpower. The strength 5 and tough 5 might make you think that they are formidable in combat. However, that weapon skill 3 and that 1 attack say otherwise. I like to think of them as tough nuts to crack, but everything that they do is around enslaving other creatures. They never want to get their hands dirty, and they don't really want to be anywhere near the fight. They can do some interesting things. They have a psychic shock power, which deals strength 5 hits at range. But their main focus is enslaving. And to enslave its victim, the enslaver needs to roll over the victim's willpower on 2d6. Once a creature has been captured, the enslaver must remain within 24 inches of that creature, or else the bond will be broken. This is an incredible ability, and one that a game master could use to really mess with a battle that's going on. Consider having orcs and space marines going at it, and when they get towards the middle of the battlefield, the GM starts rolling to enslave the various nearby creatures, and becomes basically a third player on the battlefield. Perhaps then the orcs and the space marines will have to work together to take down the enslavers, or any number of interesting things could happen from that scenario. There was also a rule for the enslavers to create a gate, which is that awful process that we talked about in their lore section, and they could do it in-game. And if they were able to do this in-game, 
you were in trouble because three more enslavers could show up. It was very possible to have a battle between two players that a random enslaver shows up and wins. There's actually a note for GMs about how to properly deploy enslavers because they are so powerful and because they will really change up the whole process of a battle. A very, very cool type of scenario. If the enslavers did manage to open a gate, that gate had 10 toughness and 10 wounds, which means you really had to try and knock it down. The picture of an enslaver, I guess the best way that I could describe it would be as a peanut that grew an eye uh, and tentacles and was in all ways wrong. I hope that helps. <laughs> There's two more warp creatures that I want to highlight today, and the first one of them is going to sound a little familiar, but maybe not in terms of 40k. I speak, of course, of the vampires. Yes, those vampires. They are a little different, but they're mostly the way you kind of expect. The ancient legends of Old Earth were for long ages discredited as invention of folklore and myth. The reality, however, was to prove far more disturbing. Vampires are polymorphic entities able to change their metabolism in order to resemble the creatures amongst whom they live. Their natural shape, if it can be called such, is bat-like, although approximately human-sized. Vampires exist within the societies of most established intelligent races, and often assume positions of authority. They naturally crave for power amongst intelligent races, regarding even fellow vampires as threatening rivals. They have no homeworld. Where they evolved and why they have come to occupy a parasitic position within alien societies is unknown. Vampires live amongst their chosen race, after the manner of that race, and cannot easily be singled out. They have psychic powers of a level comparable to humans. Vampires maintain their lives by absorbing the life force of other creatures, achieved by prolonged physical contact. Life force is drained from the victim in the form of willpower, and if the victim is a psyker, psi points. Victims drained of all willpower will die. Psi points may be recovered as normal, but willpower may only be recovered if the host is permitted d10 days to rest, after which one point is recovered for each subsequent day's rest. Fortunately, vampires can derive some sustenance by normal eating and drinking, and only require a little stolen vitality to survive. If a victim is completely drained of willpower, it can be revived as a zombie, a willless servant completely under the vampire's control. Zombies are corpses and will slowly rot and decay until their usefulness becomes somewhat limited. Creating a zombie is not something casually undertaken. A neat sci-fi take on the classic vampire. As you might expect, vampires are particularly powerful. They are movement 4, weapon skill 6, ballistic skill 6, strength 5, toughness 5, 3 wounds, initiative 6, 3 attacks, and 10s across the board in leadership, intelligence, cool, and willpower. More than a match for all but the mightiest heroes of the Imperium. What's interesting here is we don't have any talk of draining blood. It's more vitality and even psi points. 
So it makes it seem as if the vampire is perhaps draining the energy out of its victim more so than drinking its blood, specifically. However, the picture that we get of the vampire is a humanoid bat creature with two big, sharp front teeth fangs, so they could in fact just be drinking blood. Along with their vitality-draining powers, vampires have shape change, which allows them to, as you may have guessed, change their shape. The transformation takes d6 turns to complete, and once complete, the vampire gains physical abilities associated with the creature, such as being able to fly, swim, hover, etc. That's really cool. Again, a lot of these creatures lend themselves so well to interesting scenario play. I think the vampire is another one of them. Alright, the last one that we're going to talk about in our look at the creatures of the warp are called warp entities. If you want to know what demons were like before they were demons, well, here you go. Many entities exist within the medium of warp space, creatures of an altogether different order from those of the real world. Only a powerful psychic link enables a warp entity to enter the real universe, and even then, few warp entities come willingly. Such a link may be provided intentionally by combining the efforts of sick-minded psychers combined with the sacrifice of living souls. More often, the link is provided unintentionally by, you guessed it, unprotected human psychers. To survive in the real universe, the warp entity needs to assume a physical shape, which is achieved via the mind of the linking agent. On many worlds, and in many times, the manifestation of such entities has given rise to religions, demon worship, and other supernatural beliefs. Once it has been manifested in this universe, the warp entity is effectively marooned, stranded in an unfamiliar body, in an unfamiliar reality, amongst strange and barbaric creatures. Small wonder that many of these entities are very angry indeed. The only chance a warp entity has of returning to warp space is to amass psychic energy from the creatures around it. Such energy is released only as a psychic creature dies. Warp entities will manipulate the creatures around them, playing upon their superstitions and fears, and forcing them to help gather victims. Amongst primitives, cooperation is usually absolute. In more sophisticated societies, the entity may have to resort to using influential psychic powers. Warp entities will often be drawn into the real universe in groups, the largest and most powerful becoming their leaders. Entities will often cooperate if they can derive mutual advantage. This is wildly different from the latter-day demons that we would come to know. These guys seem more like victims than anything, just trying to get home after being rudely pulled out of their own dimension. But some of these things do speak to the demons that we would come to know. The way that they can manipulate the energies of the warp, the way that they will seek to take advantage of local populations through things like worship, to amass the psychic energy they need to get back home. Still, I find it a little hard to not feel a bit sorry for them, the way that they're described. They never asked for any of this. Warp entities are always powerful, but they are very random. The GM had the decision before a game to either roll up their stats or just create whatever stats they wanted. This is what Rogue Trader suggested doing. 
Movement, weapon skill, ballistic skill, strength, toughness, wounds, initiatives, and attacks would be determined by rolling d6 and adding 4 to each, which meant your worst stat was going to be a 5. Again, far more powerful than anything you're going to find in an average army list. But they also gave you a secondary randomized profile if you wanted to make just minor warp entities, the teeny tiny ones. Though even still, they're not all that bad. In this case, movement was still d6 plus 4, but the rest of the stats were d4 plus 2. So a much smaller band of statistics, but still really not all that bad. Both the larger and the smaller warp entities had leadership, intelligence, cool, and willpower of 10 across the board. And they had the following special rules. They could exert influence over creatures, which was really interesting. It was basically a way that they could take control of other models. Another role that was based on the victim's willpower. They had energy draining, which is something that they would automatically do. It was a passive rule. If a Psyker died within six inches, the Psyker's Psy points would pass directly to the warp entity. And this was tied in with their other special rule, return. If a warp entity was able to amass 100 Psy points over and above his normal maximum, he could return to the warp. In which case he would disappear because he won, as he never really wanted to be here in the first place. However, it did note that they may delay going back to the warp to help out other warp entities that were likewise stranded, but they would be unwilling to do so for very long. I really like that as a rule. Finally, warp entities may choose to cause fear or terror in any intelligent living creatures, should they wish. Alright, everybody. Now we're on to alien creatures, and this is where we're going to get some weird stuff. I mean, we already got a little bit of weird stuff, but relatively, this is where things get weird. We're actually going to start with something that is famous and familiar for a lot of 40k players, something that made its return only recently to the 40k universe in the form of the Warhammer Quest Blackstone Fortress game. I speak of everyone's favorite pincer from Pokemon, the Amble. Ambles originate from the dangerously hot polar rock deserts of Luther McIntyre 9. They can survive extremely hot temperatures for long periods, a factor which has led to attempts at domestication on several desert planets. As a consequence, ambles can be found on many planets throughout human space. Ambles have huge barrel-chested bodies and an ape-like stance. Two arms reach almost to the ground, whilst two legs are crooked and short. Both arms and legs end in iron-hard claws used for tunneling through the soft stone that covers their native land. Ambles will excavate tunnels in which to live, spending much of their time underground, sheltering from the direct heat of the sun. This subterranean lifestyle is shared with many of Luther McIntyre's inhabitants, including the Ambles' favorite food, the crawler. Ambles will pursue crawlers and any other prey through the soft rock by tunneling at considerable speed. The Amble's huge expandable jaws are then used to grab and yank the food from the loose rubble. These jaws make the creature look extremely ferocious, and are its most characteristic feature. The Amble's eyes are adapted to sense heat, 
giving infrared at all ranges. The creatures live in family groups, often occupying the same tunnel system for years on end, slowly excavating a vast underground network many miles long. While specially evolved to live below the surface, they adapt well to most environments and will eat all manner of living creatures. The original drawing of the amble in Rogue Trader is very consistent with the illustrations and even the new model from our current era of Games Workshop. It does, in fact, have a big ape-like stance. It is mostly chitinous-looking, although it might have some fur on it, too. It's a weird-looking beastie, and, of course, the big pincer mouth. Ambles are very beastly in this early edition, with movement 6, weapon skill 5, strength 5, toughness 5, 3 wounds, initiative 5, and 3 attacks. Another creature not to be taken lightly. For this next creature, the best way I can describe it is through Futurama. For anyone who watched the early seasons of Futurama, there was a fun episode called War is the H-Word, in which Fry gets drafted into the army to go and fight what can only be described as sentient balls. Just big, gaseous balls that bounce around. And for whatever reason, they're here in Rogue Trader in the early days of 40k. I'm not sure what the idea was here, but it's something else. Let's talk about the bouncers. Bouncers are an unusual life form from the planet Chabal. They are spherical, 1 to 2 meters in diameter, red with yellow veins, and have no organs or limbs apart from their normally invisible claw-like feet. A bouncer's body is light, its skeleton being formed from inflated sections of tissue. In the windy atmosphere of Chabal, bouncers travel vast distances, following the wind patterns, floating across oceans and bouncing their way from continent to continent. They are lively and inquisitive creatures, with playful natures and alert minds. They have an intelligence somewhat lower than any truly sentient race, but can mimic speech and take great interest in the activities of other creatures. Bouncers are not hostile, unless provoked. Which I suppose is true for human bouncers as well. Hmm. When they will attack by bouncing onto their victims and delivering an attack with their long, taloned claws. These creatures are quite fragile, and any rupture in their skin will usually deflate and kill them. These are odd little beasties. We don't get a picture of them, but we get a great description of a bouncy ball. So take that for what you will. Apparently there's talons coming out of that thing somewhere. We don't know. Their profile is wild. They are movement 12, weapon skill 3, strength 3, toughness 1, 1 wound, initiative 6, 1 attack. They have a single stomp attack in which they can attack things on second stories because they can bounce so high. Again, just wild stuff here. The note for them is that bouncers make a good random creature, suddenly appearing on the battlefield, bouncing about, and disappearing. For a more involved game, two sides could be battling it out, one side defending a cliffside cave. Unknown to either side, this is a bouncer nesting site, and the creatures naturally choose just that moment to return. Fantastic. If you like the weirdness, we only ramp up from here. Our next fantastic beast of the 41st millennium is the carnivorous sand clam. That sounds kind of dirty to me now. Hmm. 
anyway, this creature evolved on the mostly aquatic world of Salutation, where it lives on the wide coastal margins, preying on the many forms of semi-aquatic animals that inhabit them. The clam is about two meters across, with two large serrated valves. It spends most of its life submerged in the sticky mud, waiting. If a small animal strays within its grasp, the claw feels the vibrations of the movement above and rapidly opens, drawing sand and the victim into its shell. Although too large to be fully drawn inside, man-sized creatures can easily be trapped, and then can only escape by destroying the creature. A sand clam is a powerful animal, and its jaws can crush a leg or sever an arm. Yup, yeah, clams. Big, scary clams. They're just gonna get you. <laughs> They're gonna bite your space marine's leg right off. And they could do it, too. Uh, they have no movement because, again, they are clams. They do have a weapon skill of six, though. No ballistic skill, unfortunately. Strength of four, toughness of four, one wound, initiative three, and one attack. Sand clams are immune to all psychological effects and, because they are immobile, cannot be routed or otherwise driven away. They attack automatically should anything pass over them, trapping a victim if they score a hit. Should victims be hit but not killed, they will remain trapped until the clam is destroyed. Although in theory, the clam and the victim are in close combat, any available weapon can be used against the clam. The use of area weapons, however, is not recommended, lest the victims suffer further damage. This is one of my favorite sentences. The use of area weapons, however, is not recommended, lest the victims suffer further damage. Not recommended. But if you want to take your rocket launcher to the clam that has trapped your leg, go for it. It's only not recommended. What an incredible game this was. This is so fun. I hope you guys are enjoying this utter weirdness that we have stumbled into. And of course, where would we be without some recommended sand clam tips? Sand clams in games can be positioned along any sandy stretch, just like mines. The GM can either plot their position or simply make a note of the area in which they lurk. Any models wandering over the area are attacked on the d6 roll of a 5 or a 6. The problem becomes even more interesting as two sides clash over possession of a valuable object lying smack in the middle of a clam community. I might have a new favorite sentence. Even better, your teleport homer was attached to your commander. Your commander has been eaten by a sand clam. But which one? This is the best. I love this. Why did we ever have more than just Rogue Trader? I don't know. I don't know. I Really, this is kind of the peak. The picture of the sand clam uh, is the picture of a clam. It just, it looks like a clam in all respects. There is nothing remotely alien or unusual about it, which I think just makes it even better. <laughs> oh, I apologize. This is, I, I, this is getting to me. I love this. All right. If you're a fan of big burly guardsmen, this next one is for you. This is the Catachan Devil. These ferocious animals are large territorial carnivores. They originate from the Catachan system, but have been introduced onto several worlds. Catachan Devils are superbly adapted to life in the hot, damp jungles of their home planet. Their bodies are segmented, the midsections each having a pair of legs, and the number of sections, legs, and the creature's overall size varies according to the creature's age. Large individuals can have 20 sections, 
20 pairs of legs, and reach over 30 meters long. The rear section is modified into a long tail and poisoned barb which curves over the creature's back in the manner of a scorpion. On older male catechin devils, the front pair of legs becomes grossly enlarged, taking on the appearance of crab claws. Often one claw will be much larger than the other, and locals refer to such creatures as fiddlers. The catechin devil's head is small and pointed, with luminous green eyes. In front of the eyes and surrounding the creature's mouth is a ring of short tentacles. Each tentacle is studded with stinging cells which subdue the prey. The mouth itself is extendable, comprising two rasping mandibles. Although the creature has no teeth as such, bony hooks lining the mouth serve the same purpose and can leave an extremely ugly wound. I have to tell you that I hate the illustration of the catechin devil. It is all of the worst things in the world combined into one creature. It looks like a 30-foot-long millipede with a scorpion tail, angry pincher claws, and a face straight out of an H.P. Lovecraft book. It is a hateful thing. Games Workshop decided to give us three profiles for the Catechin Devil, a small, a medium, and a large. The small one starts at Strength 5, Toughness 5, with four wounds and a total of five attacks. The attacks for the Catechin Devil are broken down into stomps, tail attacks, tentacle attacks, and bites, and each one caused different amounts of damage. The medium Catechin Devil was a bit faster at movement 5, still weapon skill 3, this time strength 6, toughness 6 with 6 wounds, initiative 8, and a total of 7 attacks. And finally, the large Catechin Devil is movement 6, weapon skill 3, strength 7, toughness 7, 8 wounds, initiative 8, with 9 attacks. These things are terrifying. Additionally, there is a 50% chance of a large catechin devil being an adult male, with 2 additional attacks, so now we're at 11. There is a 10% chance of a male being a fiddler, with a more powerful claw. Stomps and bites cause 1 point of damage each, tail attacks cause d6 points of damage against living targets, one point otherwise, claw attacks cause d4 points of damage, d6 for fiddlers, tentacle attacks cause d4 points of damage. Honestly, catechin devils seem to take the dragon design space in Warhammer 40k. They are utterly insane, and the notes for putting them in a game say, catechin devils in games are rather powerful creatures. That's that great British understatement at work again. They make excellent death world creatures, and can be guaranteed to give players a hard time. Yeah, I'd say so. What I want to know about the lore of the Catechin Devil, and I understand that this is before Tyranids become what Tyranids would become, and there's no link between the Catechin Devil here and the Tyranid-based Catechin Devil of the future. However, why would you introduce them onto several worlds? What is the play there? Do you hate the worlds and the people living on them? Because that's really the only reason you would ever have to move one of these creatures from its habitat. We're going to stay on Catechin for just a little longer to talk about the Face Eater. This creature is native to the death world of Catechin, but has colonized several other worlds. 
though whether by accident or design, is unknown. The face-eater is one of the most unpleasant species on this generally rather dangerous world. In its natural environment, the creature hangs from trees, or lies in wait, by trackways and watering holes. When a likely-looking victim approaches, the face-eater pounces, a powerful muscle spasm propelling the animal several meters towards the head of its victim. Powerful digestive enzymes combine with the creature's rasping body surface, enabling the face-eater to feed whilst suffocating its victim. Once dead, the victim becomes the repository for a clutch of several hundred eggs, which hatch within a matter of hours. The emerging offspring pass through a maggot-like larval stage, during which they feed upon the body of their host. Face-eaters have been known to turn up even on civilized worlds, and their rapid life cycle can lead to an outbreak, which takes weeks to bring under control. They naturally seek warm, damp conditions, hence their propensity to turn up in bathrooms, where their resemblance to a face flannel has led to several unpleasant and well-publicized accidents. There's a lot to unpack here, guys. This is quite a creature. It had me in the beginning, I was like, okay, this is obviously the face hugger from Alien. I know the Games Workshop crew was a big fan of Alien. There's a lot of Alien that shows up in the early history of Games Workshop and even to this day. But then we got the face towel statement at the end, which is pretty darn hilarious. I love it. This is something that has mixed Alien with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and I think it makes it so much better. Games Workshop, especially in its early history, and I've mentioned this before, but they had a really good way of mixing properties together to make something unique and silly and fun, and the Catachin Face Eater is just one of a million examples of that. It has a rather strange profile. It is basically a face hugger towel, and it is movement 4, weapon skill 3, strength 3, toughness 1, wounds 1, initiative 5, and 1 attack. And helpfully, they do provide us with an image of the Catachin face eater in this book, and I can confirm for you that it does in fact resemble in all ways a face towel that someone has left on the ground. They have a special rule around, well, face eating, in that if they make a successful hit in close combat, they attach themselves, and they will make one attack each turn until successfully removed. The only way to remove them is with an improvised attack, which is basically a attack that you were making without any specific close combat weapons. I suppose in this case it would be tearing madly at your face. It helpfully notes that weapons, whilst effective, will always cause damage to the victim as well as the face eater. And for face eaters in games, it notes that a general area can be noted as being infested with the creatures. Any models moved move to within attack range of the face eater will be attacked on the roll of four or more. A blob of plasticine can be used to represent the face eater once on the table. That's good. I like it when you can make your own models. We're going to skip ahead a little bit and come to the Cathelian Cudbear. This is a creature that is not dissimilar, I believe, from the Bugbear of Dungeons & Dragons fame. It is a vicious carnivore originating from the Thel Death World. Its natural habitat is cool woodland and mountains, and its shaggy coat is ideal for keeping it out of the cold and wet. 
The same coat also gives a creature an appearance of a large, purple, excessively furry bear, with gaping, tooth-filled mouth and long, rending talons. Cud bears are highly territorial and ruthless killers, and think nothing of attacking even large numbers of well-armed troops. I gotta tell you, I wasn't expecting the purple. This book is, of course, in black and white, so you don't get a sense of coloration, but now that I see the illustration, which does in fact look like a bear, but with kind of cat ears, and a little bit more bipedal, imagining it in purple makes it look kind of hilarious, like a deranged Care Bear, perhaps? The Cud Bear, however, is no joke. It is Movement 6, Weapon Skill 6, Strength 7, Toughness 7, 3 Wounds, Initiative 5, and 3 Attacks. Another thing that can tear apart the Emperor's Finest with little to no effort. The book notes that the Cathelian Cudbear is a useful example of a death world carnivore. Any similar creatures can be represented with the same profile and habits. So that's nice. Then we get to the dinosaurs. Yep, just straight up dinosaurs. You didn't think, really, that this game could resist filling itself to the brim with dinosaurs, with all the silliness we've seen today. Of course they couldn't, and I don't blame them for it one bit. Giant reptiles are a common life form throughout the galaxy, especially on death worlds, where they are often the main predator type. The similarity of these creatures to various kinds of ancient Earth reptiles has prompted the generic title of dinosaurs to be used to describe them. This, however, is a mere convenience, and no biological relationship is implied. Dinosaurs vary in size, from animals no larger than a cat to monsters well over 30 meters long. Profiles are given for small, medium, and large dinosaurs, corresponding to beasts up to 5 meters, up to 10 meters, or more. Whatever their exact dimensions, dinosaurs tend to be dim and unpredictable. To reflect this, they move at a random rate. The dinosaur has some random abilities as well, and what's interesting about these is unlike the warp entities where you make one roll at the beginning of the game, this changes from turn to turn for the dinosaurs to reflect just how unpredictable and, I guess, dim that they are. Even small dinosaurs are quite powerful, with weapon skill 6, strength 5, toughness 5, and 2 wounds. Their random stats are movement, initiative, and attacks. They get 2d4 for movement, 1d6 for initiative, and d3 attacks for the small dinosaurs, when you move up to medium dinosaurs, their movement becomes 2d6, their strength and toughness goes up to 6, they gain a wound to 3, and their initiative stays the same at a random d6, and they get d4 attacks. For our large dinosaurs, they also move 2d6, stay at weapon skill 6, strength 7, toughness 7, 4 wounds, their initiative stays at d6, and they get d6 attacks. They also have a basic saving throw of 5 or 6 on a d6 to account for their tough, scaly skin. Boy, that sounds a little familiar to anyone who plays Lizardmen. Dinosaurs in-game are always something of an unknown factor, their random habits posing a real problem to all sides. Apart from using them as, as a standard heavy monster for death worlds, they can be introduced into scenarios in the guise of farm animals. Dinosaur meat is a valuable commodity, making farming practical if rather dangerous. It's good to know that there is a healthy economy for dinosaur meat in the Imperium. Next up, we have the Pharaoh Beast. The Pharaoh Beast originates from the world of Yimbo Bim. 
a planet generally poor in minerals of all kinds, and ferric minerals in particular. So acute is this deficiency, that one form of native animal has evolved specific feeding mechanisms to enable it to digest ferric metals directly from mineral ores. The pharaoh beast is about two meters long, quadrupedal, and armadillo-like, with a tough, knobbly shell. Its mouth is surrounded by short tentacles covered in suckers. These secrete acidic juices and allow the creature to turn metal ores into digestible soup. The pharaoh beast has evolved complex sensory organs that enable it to smell metal ores over a distance of many miles. The presence of pure refined metals, such as commonly used on spacecraft, and component parts on vehicles and equipment will attract pharaoh beasts from many miles around. Crazed by the nearness of refined metal, the normally placid pharaoh beast becomes insanely heedless of danger, fighting its way through almost any obstacle to feed. At such times, the creatures are aggressive and dangerous. Games Workshop, we need to talk about this one, because this is a rust monster. From Dungeons & Dragons, it is 100% a rust monster. Though they have given it one of my favorite illustrations in this book, it looks like a tortoise, but then its head is kind of a tentacly armadillo head. Some of these are very hard to describe. I'm really doing my best. I hope I can pass along the weirdness of these creatures to you. But the overall feel I'm getting here is that someone thought rust monsters were really neat and wanted to put them in here. I actually like this still. I think the idea of a monster that is just after your equipment would add a really fun and interesting dynamic to a game of 40k. The Pharaoh Beast is movement 6, weapon skill 3, strength 4, toughness 6, 2 wounds, initiative 3, and 2 attacks. On the tamer side of some of the creatures that we've seen today, but it can automatically damage certain types of metal structures, which is kind of neat. And our guide here describes it as a excellent nuisance monster for the players to deal with. Really enjoy that. Next up is the Gene Stealer. Hey, the very first Gene Stealer, except we've already gone over this guy. Doing the Gene Stealer episode was the catalyst that made me want to do this particular episode. And if you haven't listened to my episode on the history of Gene Stealers and the Gene Stealer cult, it starts here in Rogue Trader and goes all the way up to the, their reboot in 3rd edition. It's a fun one. I think it's one of the better ones that I have done. So please do check that out. The next one we're going to check in with is the Groks. The Groks pops up quite a bit in the background of Warhammer 40k. They are one of the most farmed species of animal in the Imperium. And there's, as we'll see, a good reason for that. And there's also some very dark fluff surrounding the Groks and how it's farmed. And I almost feel like quitting Groks meat after reading this. The Groks is a large reptilian creature native to the Solomon system. Many years ago, this system was absorbed into the Imperium, and it was quickly discovered that the animal possessed several remarkable and potentially useful qualities. Grox proved extremely palatable and nutritious, and experiments at farming were largely successful since Grox thrive on just about any food, no matter how poor or indigestible. Apart from being able to eat vegetable or animal matter, Groks are capable of digesting minerals directly from rocks and soil, and can survive for a good many weeks on such a diet. 
The only drawback discovered to wholesale exploitation of the groks was their temperament. Groks were mean. An adult averages approximately 5 meters long, is well-muscled, fast, aggressive, and likes its privacy. By nature territorial and loners, it was difficult to keep the animals together without driving them into a rage in which groks and their handlers were likely to lose life or limb. The solution to the problem was to lobotomize most of the stock, while keeping breeding animals suppressed by using electropulsors wired directly into their rather small brains. Chemical sedation is also used, but is less predictable. Even with these sensible precautions, accidents still happen, and it is usual for groks to be kept on isolated agricultural worlds, or as far as possible from human settlement. This is a dark backstory. I feel like if the Imperium didn't have all of the problems that it had, there'd be some kind of anti-groks farm movement going on. Groks are no joke if you get them in close combat. When the lore says that they are mean, it means it. Movement 6, Weapon Skill 4, Strength 5, Toughness 5, 3 Wounds, Initiative 6, 3 Attacks. They have their own scaly skin saving throw of 5 or 6, and they are suggested to be used as almost general hazards in a game. Now we're going to skip down a bit to the house cat, but a really nice one in the Grinks. The Grinks you might know from the Eldar Inari special character, whose name escapes me right now, but she's the one with the fan, and she has a nice little cat, and her cat is a Grinx. And this is what you should know about the Grinx. I kind of want one now, and I don't even like cats. I used to have a pair of cats, and they were just the worst. Now I have a dog, and he is only sometimes the worst. So, definitely dogs all the way for me. A Grinx resembles a large cat with very thick and fluffy ginger or orange fur and bright blue eyes. They can grow to as much as a meter in length. Grinks are not intelligent as such, but they have an astounding ability to empathize with other creatures, forming a mental bond with their owner, which is comparable to true friendship. This mental empathy is of great benefit to the creature's owner, whose own speed of thought and action are actually improved whilst the Grinx is in close proximity, what benefit the Grinx obtains from the relationship is unclear, but there is plainly some deep-seated need being fulfilled, because an ownerless Grinx will actively seek out and adopt some other creature. Oddly enough, Grinx show a slow metabolic change so that they come to resemble their owner physically, temperamentally, and in habit. Don't they sound nice? Like cats, but actually better and good for you. These guys are the best. They might be the best animals in 40k to just hang around with. The illustration of a Grinx looks like a cat. Maybe a little squirrely, too? The way their tail's very floofy. I don't know what to tell you guys. It's a cat. It looks like a cat. <laughs> the Grinx is kind of strong for a big house cat. It's movement 4, weapon skill 3, strength 3, toughness 2, 1 wound, initiative 5, and 1 attack. They have the same leadership, intelligence, cool, and willpower as their owner, or seven if they have no owner. The Grinx, if you are to take one on the battlefield, will actually make its owner better. Its owner receives a plus one to hit bonus for both shooting and close combat, and may add one to initiative. That's a great buff. Don't go into battle in the 41st millennia without taking your house cat. If a Grinx owner dies... 
the Grinx will defend the owner's body for d6 turns, after which it will either run away or will look for a new owner to adopt it, which is d6 more turns than you would get from any other cat, I would suspect. I like the Grinx a lot. I think it's a very cool, almost familiar kind of companion. Now we get to maybe the star of our show. I don't know. We've had so many good creatures today. This one is silly and wonderful and fun. It is the Terra Squirrel. The Terra Squirrel was once thought to be a peaceful and harmless animal. Its cute, furry appearance making it a popular pet throughout the Imperium. Then the truth emerged. The Terra Squirrel is merely one stage in the life cycle of the creature. Terra Squirrels live for generations as soft-furred bundles of fun. And then for another cycle of generations as dangerous blood-drinking carnivores. What prompts the change between the two forms is not known. As a result of which, Terra Squirrels have become common pests throughout the Imperium. They resemble a fluffy squirrel, but have thin membranes between their extremely long forelimbs and their rear limbs enabling them to fly. This is an angry large flying squirrel, and I love that it's here. Soft furred bundles of fun. What an awesome descriptor that is. To look at the Terra Squirrel as it is shown, this thing is a flying squirrel that has the angriest grin you have ever seen. It's large, but it's not overly large. Unlike most things here, probably isn't going to kill a regular human. It is movement 4, weapon skill 4, strength 2, toughness 2, 1 wound, initiative 5, 1 attack, and leadership 5. If it's flying, it has a maximum flight speed of 18 inches, so it can get around. Minimum flight speed of 6. According to the book, Terra Squirrels make excellent nuisance creatures, and can be controlled by the GM. They can even form part of the game plot. For example, anarchists release a flock of Terra Squirrels at a crowded spaceport. In the ensuing confusion, they mount a daring attack on a refueling spacecraft. Can you imagine trying to write this into the current era of 40k? Just imagine a coven of chaos-worshipping cultists with cages and cages full of soft, cuddly-looking squirrels, and they release them on this Imperial spaceport. The squirrels come in. Everyone's just like, what are all these squirrels doing here? Oh, they're super cute. And then one of the squirrels opens its mouth and shows you its fangs. And then it attacks and it leaps on a guy and scratches up his face. And, and then the Chaos Warband attacks. I'm going to keep saying it. 40k peaked in the 80s and early 90s. I don't care what they come out with. It's never going to be as good as this. Next up is one that I wanted to include just for the name itself, it's the Rippy Fish. <laughs> the Rippy Fish is a piranha-like aquatic creature with piranha-like habits. Apparently, it's very piranha-like. It comes from the Lost Hope Death World. Not a great name for your planet. Though many similar creatures exist on other planets, it is not large, rarely more than 30 centimeters in length, but its uncompromisingly carnivorous appetite and fearless disposition make it deadly. Rippy fish form shoals of several hundred creatures. They can live in salt water or fresh water and are immune to most poisons, extremes of temperature, and pollution. Rippy fish are movement 4, weapon skill 3, strength 3, toughness 1, 1 wound, initiative 3, and 1 attack. Rippy fish are usually found in huge shoals, numbering hundreds or even thousands of individuals. 
Because of this, the most sensible method of representing them is for the GM to work out a rough area where they are gathered, usually a stretch of river. Models moved into the river will automatically be attacked by d6 fish every turn. A shoal cannot be forced back from combat, routed or otherwise halted. Frag or crack grenades thrown into the water will kill or drive off some of the fish, reducing the chance of being attacked to a score of 4 or more on a d6. I love the idea of hucking grenades into the water just to get rid of some of the hate fish that are swimming around. Awesome stuff. Our last animal for today is the razor wings. These guys, Dark Eldar players may know, they have appeared in the recent Dark Eldar codexes as a swarm type of unit, and they existed here. Razorwing has become accepted as a generic term for a number of genetically unrelated species, which are otherwise similar in appearance and habit. These are bird-like animals, usually no more than three feet along, with carnivorous appetites. Prey are grasped with beak and talons, but the creature's main attack comes from its wings. Razorwings have modified wings, forming a sharpened, serrated edge, which can be compared to a saw. They attack by swooping down on their target, aiming to slice or seriously cut with a sweep of the wings. A strike from one of these creatures can easily kill a man-sized target. Very, very angry avians here. They are movement 2, but of course they fly, and they can fly up to 24 inches, so they will get around. They are weapon skill 5, strength 3, toughness 3, 1 wound, initiative 4, and 1 attack. Razor wings are gregarious birds and will flock together, acting as if in units on the tabletop. They will not attack other razor wings, but will otherwise attack targets as they present themselves, moving towards the nearest if possible. Razor wings in games are best suited to death worlds, although they could provide an interesting basis for a scenario. Imperial troops might be sent on a desperate mission to collect razor wing eggs for scientific research. Perhaps the eggs are required by an alien trade delegation for food, or maybe a whimsical imperial commander wishes to add them to his collection. We do get a illustration of a razor wing, and this thing looks like a hawk for the most part. Nothing special here. It's a big bird. All right, we have made it through some of the most incredible, weirdest, and most wonderful creatures of the 41st millennia. Before I leave you today, it's not technically a creature because it's technically a plant, but I do want to share with you just one last entry. And for this one, we're going to go back to Catechin, which is something you should never, ever do. And we need to talk about the Catechin brain leaf. This plant is unusual in that it is possessed of what appears to be animal-like intelligence, albeit of a fairly low instinctual level. The plant itself is a small tree, not particularly conspicuous amongst the other flora of Catechin the plant's home planet. What makes this plant remarkable is its ability to detach its leaves, which are capable of flying through the air for many meters, propelled by a wing-like undulation. Each leaf is a macro cell and part of the plant's overall intelligence. Equipped with rasping hooks and intrusive nerve bundles, the leaf aims to attach itself to a living creature, injecting fibers which grow throughout the host's nervous system until it becomes a mere tool for the plant. Whilst incapable of higher intellect, a brain leaf can direct its victims in a sensible and rational way, enabling them to utilize weapons and equipment. 
The Brain Leaf, being a tree, uh, has no movement, weapon skill, or ballistic skill. It is strength 4, toughness 4 with 3 wounds, and has literally no other stats. It will attack animals or anything else coming within 12 inches, but can discriminate between various creatures and may choose not to attack if it so wishes. Attacked creatures will be successfully taken over on the d6 roll of a 4 or more, but basic armor saving throws are allowed. Once taken over, a creature becomes completely under the control of the brain leaf and cannot be freed from its domination unless the plant itself is killed. Brain leaves in games have a certain potential to be controlled by a separate player, but can be run by the GM quite easily. Because they are inconspicuous amongst the general flora, there is no need to have them represented by models, although the GM should know exactly where they are. A character would certainly recognize a brain leaf if he saw one. Although not intelligent, the brain leaf should be allowed to utilize some, although not all, of the knowledge of its victim, allowing psychers to continue using their powers, navigators to fly spacecraft, etc. I love the idea of some stupidly powerful character in 40k getting brain leafed. I'm thinking Abaddon or Gilliman, maybe Eldrad. One of those characters that's just so uppity and important. It's just like, nah, you serve this tree now. It's just going to make you do tree stuff. Probably going to go out and buy fertilizer. It's going to be a whole thing. I love this. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've had as good a time as I have with this episode. It's a silly one. It's one that I really wanted to do. And the crazy part is there's so much more in this book in this early era that we could go over that we could explore and have some fun doing. If you like this episode, if you like this type of episode, please let me know. I love just going over these old books and seeing what we can find and what we can do. I know the 40k episodes don't tend to do as well as the fantasy episodes because the nature of our audience is more fantasy focused, but for fantasy fans, I do hope that you enjoy the utter strangeness that is early days 40k. There's so much here that's fantasy inspired that hopefully you have a good time, even if it's not your main game system. That is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a great week, and happy wargaming. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wargames Orchard. If you like the show, why not support us on Patreon? Our Patreon is where you will find our bonus content, and is totally non-tiered, so for whatever donation you'd like, you can have access to all of our bonus content. Our bonus episode for this month is the Warhammer Hall of Shame where we take a look at some of the worst units in the history of Warhammer Fantasy. If Patreon's not your thing, then consider giving us a 5-star rating on your podcast platform of choice and sharing this show with friends. If you'd like to get in touch with us, check out what's new with the Wargames Orchard, or just say hello, you can find us on Facebook. Our community page is the Warhammer Orchard, and while you're there, you can follow our regular page, the Wargames Orchard. Outside of Facebook, you can get a hold of us by email at wargamesorchard at gmail.com. <laughs>